And for us, we're going to be in the book of Jude this morning. Uh, the book of Jude. And so let me encourage you to open up your Bibles there and, and uh, find your way uh, near the back of the Bible, right in front of the book of Revelation, the book of Jude. And uh, we'll take a look this morning at verses 8 through 10. All right, Jude, chapter 8 through 10. Or not chapter, verse. Verses 8 through 10. Uh, <clears throat> so here we go. Ready? <clears throat> so depending on the occasion, uh, there's a certain decorum. There's a, a certain attire that's required, a, a certain behavior that is expected. I remember one time being invited to a restaurant in downtown Fort Worth, and for some reason I thought the restaurant was the cattleman's at, down in the stockyards. And so uh, Vicki was a little bit surprised when I walked out of the bedroom wearing a, a pair of jeans, and she asked if I was dressed appropriately, and again, still thinking we're going to one place. I said, oh, sure, yeah, it's, it's, it's appropriate. And then as the GPS uh, started giving me directions as we were heading to downtown Fort Worth instead of the stockyards, my anxiety level increased. And sure enough, when I arrived at the restaurant, I was underdressed for the occasion. And so this morning, I want us to consider not uh, what is, I want to consider what is appropriate for church. Not the dress, not even the behavior. Instead, I want us to consider what I can, uh, something far more serious, and that is, blasphemy in the church, blasphemy in the church. You say, how does blasphemy come into the church? Well, we're going to try to understand that this morning as we uh, consider the scriptures today. As you study the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, it becomes apparent that God is concerned about the fidelity of his people, the fidelity of his church, both to him and to his word, what the author of the book of Jude, Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about contending for the faith. If you go to the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 14, I was doing some work in there yesterday, and Hosea chapter 14, uh, verse 1, return to the Lord. God's call is to his people to return to him. Verse 4, and I will heal your apostasy. God is calling his people to return back to him and to find healing in him. When you come to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, uh, we read, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. You say, how can anybody abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and Things taught by the demons. Listen to what it says. Such things, such teachings rather come through hypocritical liars whose conscience has been seared with a hot, hot iron. And so God says that if you're not careful, we can be led astray to believe something that is even demonic through the teaching of hypocritical liars. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul writing again to Timothy on the, near the end of his life. He says, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Paul writes, have nothing to do with such people. God says, this is going to happen. Have nothing to do with such people. God's concern is that we remain true to him to the end. Uh, 
later on in the book, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, for the time will come when people not put up with sound doctrine and instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Their ears will, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You know what God is saying? God says that if we're not careful, we'll turn away from the truth and we'll embrace and believe myths. A few verses later, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes in a very personal way to Timothy. He says, Timothy, come, do your best to come quickly to me. Why? Verse 10. For Demas, having loved this world, has deserted me. How easy it is for God's people who are one day walking with him, following him, serving him, to be led astray if we're not careful. Allowing the love of this world to lead us away from the love of God. To the church in Thyatira, the Lord Jesus Christ writes his letter, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants. She misleads the people of God into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to, idol to idols. So by her teaching, she leads the people of God, the servants of God, into immorality and into idolatry. idolatry. And so this morning, we're going to come and we're going to see in God's word this morning, we're going to encounter a word three times. It's not necessarily going to be translated in English three times, but from the original language, it's going to be there three times. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. And that's the word blasphemy. We're going to see it in verse 8 and verse 10 as a verb. It's an action. Something that someone is saying. And then in verse 9, it's going to be used as a noun. Describing what someone did not say. And so what is blasphemy? And so let's try to establish here this morning a definition for us that so we're working from the same place. But we can just define blasphemy this way. To revile or belittle. So when we blaspheme, we revile or belittle. We insult or we slander. In fact, the word that is most frequently translated in as um, slander in your New Testament is the word, this word, that we're going to see this morning in our text, blasphemy. It's, the, it's having a disparaging attitude towards someone demonstrated in words and or actions. It's having a disparaging attitude towards someone demonstrated in words or actions and we'll find this morning as we study or continue our study through this book of Jude that the reason the Holy Spirit led Jude to write this short 25 verse letter urging Christians to contend for the faith is because as we have already seen in verse 4 that ungodly people have crept in and they have deceived God's people and they have distorted God's truth and they've denied God's son and their presence their presence among the people of God, their activities, their teaching, their lifestyle, their attitudes, their blasphemy, they have belittled, they have reviled, they have displayed a disparaging attitude toward God and his word, toward God and his church. And so Jude wrote this letter warning us about allowing blasphemy to enter into the church. You say, how does that happen? Well, we're going to look. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to read God's Word. And as I've been doing this fall, I've been reading from a different translation just so you can 
hear how different translations are giving to us the Word of God. Translating today, we're going to read from the New American Standard. I believe the verses are behind me on the screen. Follow along as I read God's Word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It's a wonderful prayer that we can be praying for each other, praying for our homes, praying for our marriages, praying for our church. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing um, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who have long beforehand marked out were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you once know... Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all that the Lord... Uh, Though you know all things once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authorities, and here's the first time we see that word blasphemy, they revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a Railing judgment, the second time that word blasphemy is used, did not dare pronounce a railing judgment against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile, blaspheme, the things which they do not understand, and the things which, you do not, which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for the pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever." And about these also, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in their ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. And here's his application. But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last times there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, 
devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the whole, in building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Verses 8 through 10, the NIV, in the same way, on the strength of their own dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he disputed, uh, was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things that they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So this morning, I'm going to try to answer two questions. How, do blas- how does blasphemy get a foothold among God's people? How does that happen? And what happens when we begin to allow, accept, tolerate blasphemy in the church? So let's consider these questions. We're going to look at in these three verses, four statements How can blasphemy gain access into the church? Consider with me, first of all, the root of blasphemy. The root of blasphemy. You say, what is the root of blasphemy? I I submit to you this morning that the root of blasphemy is supplanting revelation. Supplanting revelation. Jude begins, verse 8. He says, in the very same way, these people. He's referring us back to verse 4. These who have crept into the church unnoticed, these ungodly people who have crept in and they have um, distorted God's grace, they have denied Jesus Christ, and they have, um, uh, they, they've deceived God's people, rather, they've distorted God's grace, they've denied God's Son. They've come under the judgment of God. And Jude here is saying that these false teachers, like those in verses 5 through 7, found themselves under the judgment of God. They too, these two are also under the judgment of Christ for leading um, people away from their devotion to him. You say, how were they guilty of distorting God's people, or distorting God's grace, deceiving God's people, and denying God's son? Look what he says. These people, on the strength of their dreams. On the strength of their dreams. Now, he's not talking about what we dream at night. He's not talking about having that dream where you you know, wake up in Hawaii on vacation or you, you, um, you, you go to the store and you buy the lottery ticket and you win the lottery. He's not talking about a nighttime dream. What he's talking about here, the word for dreams here, has the idea of visions and revelations. It's a strength. It is on the strength of their visions. It's on the strength of their revelations that they're able to lead God's people away from their devotion to Christ and their commitment to the word of God. What were these false teachers doing in Jude's day? What are false teachers doing today? They're leading people away by supplanting true revelation with what I call a spurious, a false revelation. I like what Adrian Rogers has said about apostasy. 
who's described what's going on here. He says, having received the truth, they have rejected the truth, they now ridicule the truth, and eventually they try to replace the truth. And what we find here in verse 8 is that whenever the biblical truth is rejected, when something else is elevated, and that something else might be tradition, it may be an experience. I had a dream. I had some power encounter. It may be what someone says. It's, well, the Pope has said this. He's speaking as cathedral or ex cathedra. Or Joel Olstein said this. Or listen, don't even take my word for things. Listen to the word of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't put anything above the word of God. Tradition, experience, what other people says. Here's a big one, personal opinion. Well, I think this. What well, doesn't matter what we think, does it? What does God say? That's what matters. And so we have to get back to this. And so on the strength of their dreams, they're presenting an alternative reality, an alternative revelation, and they're leading people astray. You say, how can someone be so gullible to believe something like this? And I, we, have, we have to be just very cautious here. And that is this. It is the power of deception. The power of deception. On the strength of their dreams, they were relying on extra-biblical revelation. They were acting on spurious revelation. And people were being led astray. You say, does that still work today? Does it still work today? Is this still a threat that we face today? Or was this just a threat that was facing the first century church? Let me give you three examples. Muhammad, born around 570 AD. In the year 610, around the age of 40, he began to have visions and started hearing voices. And so searching for clarity, he would sometimes meditate near Mecca. And on one of those occasions, the archangel Gabriel supposedly appeared to him and instructed him to recite, In the name of your Lord. And out of this and many other revelations became the basis of the Quran. And out of this grew the worldwide religion of Islam that denies Jesus Christ. On the strength of their dreams, the revelation of God is recorded in Scripture, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, has been supplanted by another experience. Example number two. During the Second Great Awakening, a farm boy from western New York named Joseph Smith went to the hills to pray about which denomination he should, he should join, right? So this is during the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards uh, or, or George Whitfield and uh, John Wesley, the Second Great Awakening. And, um, <clears throat> and so he's praying about which denomination he should join. And Smith said that he received a vision in the spring of 1820 which God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ appeared to him and instructed him to... Uh, Join no existing churches, for they were all wrong. And so during the 1820s, Smith chronicled several purported angelic visions and, eventually, and was eventually told that God would use them to establish the true church, right? Smith said that he received the Book of Mormon by translating what was written on golden plates, written in the Egyptian hieroglyphics. He was able to translate these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that were written on these golden plates with the help of this angel who appeared to him and in, in June of 1829 he, 
He completed that translation, the Book of Mormon, and the Mormon church began, right? How can this be? On the strength of their dreams. The revelation of the true God, the living God, as recorded in Scripture, has been replaced by another revelation, a spurious revelation. Unless we think that this is only something that has happened in history, the self-proclaimed apostle David Taylor has a worldwide ministry of dream interpretation. In December 1989, so 30 years ago, he claims to have had a vision of Jesus appearing before him, and in 1992 he had another vision where he was supposedly taken to heaven and foretold of a special ministry, and, and has had subsequent visions since then, and appearances of Jesus Christ appearing to him, and his ministry today is the ability to be able to interpret your dreams so you can enter into all that God has for you. How does this happen? On the strength of their dreams. You say, what is the root of blasphemy? Whenever we begin to set aside the word of God for something else, whenever we appeal to another authority, a higher authority, an equal authority, we, we make something equal to the word of God, we put ourselves in danger, danger of blasphemy, right? So what happens when blasphemy is accepted and tolerated in the church? Well, consider with me not only the root of blasphemy, the strength of their dreams, consider with me the uh, the fruit of blasphemy, that it is immorality, uh, insubordination, and irreverence. We see this in the second part of verse 8. And look what it says. In the very same way, in the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people, notice what it says. We have three action words, three verbs of what they do. On the strength of their dreams, this is what they do. They pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. They heap abuse on celestial beings. <clears throat> immorality, insubordination, irreverence, defile the flesh. They pollute their bodies. They corrupt the flesh. They become stained from the inside and out and anything begins to go. Anything is accepted. Anything is tolerated. Jude forewarned this in verse 4 that, that they would turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Listen, God will forgive you. Just do whatever you want. And there's never a call to holiness. There's never a call to following Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only are they promote immorality but they become insubordinate they the bible says that they reject authority and i believe that the best way to understand this is that they reject the authority of god whether it is god his word or his the authority that he has established the natural authority that he's established uh, in this earth on this earth they become a law to themselves they become lawless verse four these ungodly people they deny the only master and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not going to be under his authority. Um, for, I don't know, the, during the summer months, there's been a podcast uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if you've listened to it. It, it chronicles the, the rapid ascension, the rise of a church plant up in Seattle. The Northwest is one of the least reached people's uh, groups uh, in, in the United States. And Seattle, there's this church that began to grow called, uh, led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill. And <clears throat> rapid growth. But then things started going askew. Things started going sideways. And there were people that were speaking to Mark's life. And, and one of his uh, advisors, counselors said, you need to put yourself under the authority of someone. Put yourself under the authority under a res another respected pastor. Someone like, like John Piper. 
And Driscoll's response was, I can't submit to him because my church is bigger than his. And whenever we have a spirit of insubordination and pride, this danger is always lurking. This is the word of God here, warning us. Number three, on the strength of their dreams, they, they, they become immoral, they didn't follow the flesh, they become insubordinate, they, they reject authority. Number three, they become irreverent, they heap abuse on celestial beings. That word heap abuse, as I already pointed to during the scripture reading, is the word for blasphemy. They blaspheme, literally, glories, doxa, glories, glorious ones. And so doxa could refer to the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. They revile, they blaspheme the glory of God. They revile, they blaspheme the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. So how do our Bible translators get to, they heap abuse on celestial beings or angelic beings. How did they get there? As I've shared, as we've been going through the book of Jude, Jude parallels uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, something very similar. Peter alludes to angelics, uh, the angelic ministries there that are being abused. I think, so there's the, the parallel with 2 uh, Peter chapter 2 that helps us understand that, but consider with me one of the ministries of the angels, one of the ministries of angels. And let me just give you a, so we don't get lost in the weeds here. You guys okay? You guys still with me? All right, we'll try to get through this here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Moses is giving his blessing to the nation of Israel before his death. And he takes them back to Sinai and he remembers, and he recounts what happened at Sinai, that the Lord was present in the giving of the law with his ten thousands of ten thousands, with his angelic beings. Um, Peter, not Peter, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he was being stoned, said, or prior to his stoning, when he was making his defense, spoke about how that the giving of the law was accompanied, attended to by angels. Paul said the same thing in Hebrews chapter, or not Hebrews, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews tells us that angels attended to the giving of God's law. One of the ministries of angels is that they are the guardians of God's law. As they were assigned to guard the Garden of Eden after the fall of Adam and Eve, so angels guard the attending of God and the giving of God's law. What does this phrase mean? What does Jude mean when he says that these false teachers, they heap abuse, they blaspheme angelic beings? What does that mean? I believe it's this. Having a disdain for God's word, having rejected the truth of who God is and what he has said and done as recorded for us in the scriptures, these false teachers revile, they heap abuse, they blaspheme the guardians of God's law. And what we find here is that Jude is just reminding us here that it's very easy for blasphemy to creep into the church whenever we dismiss the authority, the importance of the scriptures in our lives. The fruit, the evidence of one's doctrine, of one's belief will always be seen in their behavior. This is why the opening sentence of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, 
as you've heard me say before in the past, I think there's a book beside the Bible that every Christian ought to read, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. His opening sentence, the most important thing about any person is what they think when they think about God. Because it'll, it'll shape and direct every decision we make in life, what we think about who God is. Jesus said that we need to examine the fruit. No tree, can, no good tree can produce bad fruit. Immorality, insubordination, irreverence. And no, true, no bad tree can produce good fruit. Righteousness, holiness, godliness. So what happens? What happens when blasphemy is accepted in church? The fruit is evident. You say, how does that happen? Verse nine, consider with me the soil of blasphemy. The soil of blasphemy. How does the, how does the, the, the root of blasphemy begin to grow and produce fruit? What, where did, what kind of soil does it grow in? It grows in the soil of arrogance. Verse nine. Blasphemy. That attitude that dismisses God's word, reviles God's authority, is able to take root in our lives, is able to take root in the church of Jesus Christ because of arrogance. Verse nine. Another difficult verse to interpret. You guys enjoying this study? Good, because it's challenging me during the week, all right? <clears throat> uh, Jude in verse 9, apparently quotes from an extra-biblical source illustrating the truth of what he has just said. That blasphemy grows in the soil of arrogance and he uses uh, that it's able to take root because there's an arrogant spirit among these false teachers. Um. And so he uses an extra-biblical source as an illustration to support his point. One of the early church fathers, Origen, from the second century, says that Jude was quoting from a source called the Assumption of Moses. All right? This is an extra-biblical source. Right? Verse 9, we don't read a verse 9 anywhere in Scripture. Right? It's an extra-biblical source illustrating a point that Jude is making. Right? That, that source, the Assumption of Moses, has been lost. We don't have a copy of it today. Right, we're going on what others have said about this book, about this writing. And so by way, by way of illustration, Jude is making his point that the soil in which blasphemy grows and takes root is arrogance. Verse 9 begins with the word but. So he's establishing a contrast for us. He's setting us apart. He's, he's, saying, he's saying these false teachers, they do this. On the strength of their own dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they heap abuse on angelic beings, but, and now he's going to point to Michael the archangel. They do what even Michael the archangel didn't do, and that is heap and a reviling judgment on um, Satan. And so he gives the contrast here. What do we know actually happened with the life and death of Moses? We know from Deuteronomy chapter 34 that Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land. Instead, God took him to a mountain, allowed him to see the land that was uh, in front of the people, that Joshua would take them into it, and Moses was not able to go in because 
He struck the rock in the wilderness when he should have spoke to the rock. He dishonored the glory of God. And he was not able to see the promised land, enter the promised land. He was able to see it, but not able to enter it. And the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that the Lord buried Moses in the valley of Moab, in the land of Moab, in a valley in the land of Moab. Michael, the archangel, appears to us in three chapters in the Bible. Daniel 10, Daniel 12, Revelation chapter 12. And he appears to us as the chief prince. In Revelation chapter 12, Michael the archangel is seen battling with Lucifer when Lucifer rebelled against God and was instrumental in casting Lucifer and a third of the angels out of heaven. He appears to be the guardian over the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Or not Deuteronomy chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12. And this extra-biblical source says that when Moses died, Satan apparently contended with, for the body of Moses. Why did he want the body of Moses? We don't know. Maybe to set up a shrine, to set up a, set up a relic, uh, 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 another way to turn people away from believing in the living God. Whatever. We don't know, right? <clears throat> but what Michael did is that Michael did not blaspheme or utter a reviling condemnation with slander. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. The point, right? So that's the interpretation. Hopefully that makes sense to you guys. The point that Jude is making is this. These false teachers, these blasphemers, are characterized by an arrogance where they put themselves, their experience, their knowledge above the word of God. They do the very thing that even angels do not do. Their insight, their experience, their interpretation is elevated above the word of God. Above the faith that was once for all delivered to the people. And this is the soil in which blasphemy flourishes. Right? Does that make sense? All right. Let's go to number four. Point number four. And then we're going to try to get to an application. All right? So we're going to move quickly here. Number four, verse 10, the end of blasphemy. Why <clears throat> is this warning so apropos? <clears throat> the end of blasphemy always leads to destruction. The end of blasphemy always leads to destruction. Whenever we supplant the word of God for, with another source of authority, the end result is always destruction. This is why Jude gives to us this warning. And he's appealing to us not to replace the word of God with something else. Always hold to the scriptures, right? So claiming to have knowledge, claiming to have insight, claiming to have had some experience, Jude says they begin to act like unreasoning animals. <clears throat> unreasoning animals uh, to be without knowledge, to be without revelation, to be without a word from God. Claiming to have a word from God, Jude says they are acting like an unreasoning animal. They're acting like, they're acting instinctively without any knowledge, without any revelation, without any word from God. And what does the word of God say? The word of God says that they are destroyed. They are destroyed. Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, the Old Testament book of Amos, God warned the nation of Judah that there would be a famine coming. 
A famine not in which there would be food, food would be scarce, but the word of God would be scarce. And whenever we reject the word of God, as the revelation of God, we find ourselves coming under the judgment of God. That's the point of this passage. So, what do we do as God's people? All of us here today would say, yeah, I hold on to the word of God. I hold, I, I don't, I, th this is not me. I'm not a blasphemer. I hold on to the word of God. I would imagine every one of us here would say that. So what do we do? So let me give to you what I call a soul defense. And a soul defense is an authentic faith. We need to have an authentic faith, right? You know, you talk about home defense systems, right? You know, spray your house for, you know, um, roaches and ants and termites and whatnot, right? You need to have a home defense system. The Word of God says we need to have a soul defense. How do we maintain an authentic faith? Let me give you three, three, three application points and then, we're gonna, and then we'll be done, right? Number one, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm begging you, I am urging you, I am pleading with you that we would commit ourselves to become students of God's Word. That we would become students of God's Word, right? Not just on Sunday, be content with hearing the sermon on Sunday. Not content with just, listen, the daily bread is a wonderful devotional. I encourage you, start there, but don't stop with the daily bread. Become a student of this book. Let this book become your guide. Let this book become your, your defense by which you weather the storms, the, the false teachings, the, the the misrepresentations that are going to come to us, they're bombard us day by day. First uh, Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, that by the milk of God's word, you might grow up in respect to salvation if you have tasted of the kindness of God. Listen, right here, this verse calls us, one, to crave the word of God, but if you have tasted the kindness of God, growing up in respect to salvation, none of this really matters if you have yet to turn your life to the Jesus Christ. None of this really matters if you have yet to open up your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first step for all of us, is that we must be born again. And if you're not born again, you must be born again. Not being born again is to blaspheme the word of God because what you're saying is, I can find salvation in some other way. And there is no other way. Jesus Christ alone. And so if you have never turned from sin and you have never turned to Jesus Christ, Today, call upon him for salvation. Commit yourself to being a student of God's word. Number two, oh, as a church, you know, listen, ways to do this in, in the church. Uh, listen, our Bible for Life class Sunday morning, 930. We, we study the scriptures so we might grow up in the scriptures. Don't miss the 930 Bible study for life hour. Thursday night, the Precept Bible Ministry, a way to study the scriptures. Listen, take advantage of the opportunities to be able to learn how to study the word of God. Number two, 
test everything. Test everything according to the word of God. Anything that you hear, whether it's in the classroom, on television, in the news, from the church pulpit, test everything by the word of God. Acts chapter 17, when Paul left Thessalonica, went to the Bereans, the Bible says this about the Bereans, that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Right? Uh, Become a student of the word of God. Test everything you hear. Everything you believe, everything you see by the word of God. Number three, ask God to give you a holy hunger for him. Ask God to give you a holy hunger for him. Chris and Steve have been teaching through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. One of the Beatitudes, uh, the, uh, the third or fourth Beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. Ask God, Lord, give me a hunger for you. Give me a hunger for your word. God, give me a hunger that, that uh, grant to me not only a hunger, but grant to me the ability to be able to read your word, understand your word, apply your word, obey your word. Listen, if we don't hunger the things of God, we're not going to pursue the word of God. And so many times we, we find ourselves, we, we love this world like, like Demas, we love this world and we're comfortable with our carnality as Christians. Oh, that we would ask God to give him a holy hunger for himself. Chris and Cindy, I think are gonna come and lead us in our closing song of invitation. Listen, there is something far worse than showing up to a restaurant realizing that you're underaddressed. And that is going through life reviling blaspheming disparaging the word of god given to us on the pages of scripture